Hi there, I'm Hallie Parkins, and this is St. Mark's School of Theology. In Tacoma, Washington, there is a mountain that stands above all others. This mountain marks this city and surrounding landscape in Washington. Many of us know this 14,410-foot mountain as Mount Rainier, but to the native peoples of the Pacific Northwest, this mountain is known as Tahoma. In the fall of 2020, as we navigated the new landscape of online connection, we began exploring creation as both the inspiration location, and text for our worship services, moving through the forests, coasts, and mountains of the Pacific Northwest to explore our relationship to God and to one another. Oceans, forests, flora, and fauna, sky, and earth became our Bible of creation, our place to read the stories of the Bible we read through the Word and the stories of creation we read in the natural world. Like thousands of Christians around the world, this fall season was a time of restoration and hope, a special extended anniversary to celebrate the earth as ground and source of our being, and to explore and discover new ways of living within the created world. We recognize there is an urgent need to heal our relationship with our creation and with each other. This fall, we had the privilege of hosting Jeff Antonellis Lab, Professor Emeritus of the Evergreen State College, and author of Tahoma's Biggest Stories to explore the relationships between human beings in this beloved mountain. Jeff took us on a journey through archaeological sites that the indigenous peoples of the Northwest frequented over the past 9,000 years. He also detailed the extensive effects of climate change on the mountain, far beyond the mountain's retreating glaciers, affecting plant and animal life, and even the flow of rivers. It was clear, as we were drawn into Jeff's enthusiasm for the rich history of the mountain, how much more there was to this mountain than just beautiful hiking. Let's start with the people. Let's start with uh, Lieutenant Couts. And, uh, you know, I, th I think like all of us here tonight, uh, Couts was uh, an Army uh, lieutenant. He was stationed at Fort Stillicum, about 60 miles from Mount Rainier. And oh, I think like everybody on this call tonight, he became mesmerized by the mountain. He became obsessed with climbing it. He drove his colleagues crazy talking about wanting to climb it. And one of the interesting things that you, you might already know about this period of time in the 19th century, throughout the West, in many places, European American explorers had this idea, actually turned out to be a a mistaken belief that native people avoided the high country, that for whatever reasons, people did not go into mountain, native people did not go into mountainous areas. And this is actually reflected in one of Couch's journal entries when he was preparing for his attempt to summit the mountain. He wrote that information relating to the mountain was exceedingly meager. No white man had ever been near it and Indians were superstitious and afraid of it. Superstitious and afraid. And interestingly and ironically, uh, Couch was actually helped to a large degree by Native people, by Indian people. Uh, he had become friends with Leshai, uh, the noted uh, Nisqually leader, and it was Leshai who suggested that 
uh, couch take a route up the Nisqually Valley, uh, River Valley, up to try to climb the mountain. And it was probably also Leshai that suggested that uh, Couch needed to hire a guide. And he hired the Indian guide Wapawedi. And Wapawedi was actually from Leshai's uh, home village. So another example of this idea of European Americans thinking that native people avoided the high country comes from Hazard Stevens. And with his climbing partner, P.B. Van Trump, they're generally credited by most historians as having the first successful ascent of Mount Rainier. And, uh, and Stevens had the same mistaken idea. He wrote of Mount Rainier that it was a virgin peak, that the superstitious fears and traditions of the Indians had prevented their attempting to reach the summit. So again, superstitious, fearful traditions. Um, and again, crazy and ironic, uh, Stevens and Van Trump were helped to a very large extent by their Indian guide, Sluiskin, who not only guided them over the, the unfamiliar and difficult terrain that Stevens and Van Trump apparently did not know very well, but also, at one point in their expedition, Sluiskin uh, shot and dressed and roasted four marmots for one of their meals. So he actually fed them. Um, so this mistaken idea persisted for decades and decades that Native people avoided the high country, even despite uh, oral histories of Native American people uh, you know, going into the mountains, even some stories of uh, documented stories of young men climbing to the very top of Mount Rainier in something that you and I might consider like a vision quest. But this idea, this mistaken belief, began to be turned on its head in the 20th century. And actually, uh, one of the events that happened was a series of interviews that was conducted by an anthropologist at Washington State University. Alan Smith received permission to interview some tribal elders at the Yakima, Muckleshoot, and Nisqually Reservations in the summer of 1963. And in talking to these, I think it was maybe 13 tribal elders, in talking with these folks, he learned and was able to bring forward a body of knowledge that was not widely known at that time at all. And so in talking with the elders, Smith learned, for example, that, well, they and their ancestors had been going up into the high country for as long as anybody could remember. And one of the reasons that folks went up there was to hunt mountain goats. That was one of the things that they sought uh, up, in the, up in the high country. You would think of the warm wool and the thick hides. Uh, these made really great robes and blankets, of course. But the other thing that Smith learned, other things that Smith learned was that uh, people also went uh, to the mountains uh, in search of hoary marmots. And apparently these guys don't have any idea what social distancing is, but that's okay. But uh, they were sought after uh, also as food. They were part of Native American diets and also their, their hides were probably sewn into blankets or robes. Uh, Smith also learned from the elders that people gathered uh, plants for different... Um, uh, food purposes for medicinal and for technological purposes. You might know bear grass here. This is a member of the lily family. And these thin, narrow, long basal leaves that are growing out from the base of the plant, people harvested these and then prepared them and later used them as part of the design pattern in basket making. When you see that fine, light design 
in uh, Salish baskets. Many cases it would have been uh, fashioned in there with the use of bear grass. And the other thing that Smith learned, and up until this time, people didn't really know much, but that native people had a, a, a very fondness for huckleberries. And it doesn't matter to me if you call them blueberries or mountain blueberries, but the, the several species of vaccinium uh, were an extremely strong draw to native people to go up into the high country. And, you know, of course they ate them fresh. Uh, who, who doesn't love fresh huckleberries? But uh, they also preserved them. They would dry them over a low intensity fire, put them on a rack, over a low fire and dry them and then take them back to their lowland villages where they would rehydrate them and use them over the winter months. Uh, really, huckleberries are really important source of vitamin C in early Native American diets. So these next couple of maps are also from Smith's work. Uh, the white dot here is meant to uh, signify kind of like the summit of the mountain and see if you can make out the darker outline of the glaciers that are spreading away from the summit. And the interesting thing here is that Smith learned that native people uh, divided up the mountain into use areas roughly along the ridge lines, as indicated by these heavy dark gray lines here. And I always like to think about this, that people access the mountain parts of the mountain from the watersheds within which they lived. So that was pretty logical. And certainly there were other groups, native groups that used the mountain, but these were the five primary groups that came forward uh, in the conversations, in the interviews that Smith had with the elders. The, the other image here, and I've doctored this a tiny bit just to put some yellow stars here to make it easier to see the primary population villages main population centers of these uh, three tribal groups about the time of settlement by European Americans in Puget Sound country. So this would have been in the mid 19th century. And if you use the scale at the bottom, you can see that even the closest villages are more than 30 miles away from the mountain. And Yakima village is over 80 miles. And bear in mind that travel by horseback is a pretty recent convention in, in this region. O only in the last few hundred years have people used, traveled by horses here. So that suggests that people traveled on foot, uh, we think probably up to 20 miles a day, and sometimes for days to get to the mountain. And that, I think that pretty conclusively says, man, there was a really strong pull. There was something really that drew people to the mountain. And there were other reasons, of course, but primarily experts think that it was to seek these resources that they did not have access to or that were in very short supply near their lowland villages. So when Smith finished his interviews in the summer of 1963, he turned his data over to his colleague archaeologist Richard Doherty, and that fall, Doherty set out on foot with some graduate students up at Mount Rainier, and their intent was to try to find some potential archaeological sites based on the interviews. Makes perfect sense. Acting on a park ranger's tip, they actually found a rock shelter on the northeast side of the mountain. And if you look here on the bottom right-hand quadrant of this rock face, can you make out kind of a, a concave area? Can you kind of see that? Not quite a cave, but kind of like a rock shelter. So when they got up there, what they found was that this had been a hunter's camp 
This was like a backcountry camp where people came, small groups, probably, you know, three, four, five people at a time, uh, probably from Yakima or Klickitat villages. And they basically set up camp here. They, they would build, build fires. They might erect shelters, but they have the, the, the rock overhang to protect them from the weather. They would uh, dress their game here. They would roast it and eat it. They would work on their tools here. They would sleep here and use this as a base camp while they hunted out in the, in the area around here. So when this site was excavated the next year, a couple of WSU graduate students, they found over 100 stone tool artifacts. Now, these are some scrapers, blades, and projectile points that are representative of the kind of finds from Mount Rainier at these archaeological sites. Here's a close-up of the projectile point. And I have to tell you that this is like the grand prize champion sort of artifact, all right? Very few of these, in, in my opinion. And in fact, most of what is found at these sites are stone slivers. I, I always look at my pinky finger now, not much bigger than your pinky finger now. Considering that the, the stone in this area was adequate for tooling, it wasn't fantastic, but it was brittle, it would chip and break easily. So everywhere that people went, they had to retool, they had to sharpen or make tools fresh. And where they did this, they left behind like a, a shower of chipstone debris. And this is mostly what people have found at most of the archaeological sites at places on the mountain. But just the same, this was called the Frying Pan Creek Rock Shelter, uh, excavated in 1964. It was a big deal in archaeological and anthropological circles because uh, it was the highest known uh, excavation in the state of Washington at the time. And it was also the first excavated site at Mount Rainier. Now, there were others soon to be added to the record, and I want to take you to a couple of those and show you a few of those because they have some interesting, interesting features, I think, that stand on their own that you might, you might like. So this is actually a site in the Nisqually watershed. Uh, I would imagine there are folks here on this call tonight that have been up to Indian Henry's hunting ground, a fabulous meadow on the southwestern side of the mountain. And I'm willing to bet that most of you have probably have stopped at the Coutts Creek picnic area uh, between the Nisqually entrance and on the way to Longmire, or at least you've stopped at Couch Creek, or at least you've driven by it. But if you hike up the Couch Creek Trail from the picnic area, you've come pretty close to this site that uh, evidence shows that was frequented probably by ancestors of present-day Nisqually tribal members for over 7,000 years. And so what people did was they would come up to this site in midsummer, right, after the snows had melted out a little bit. They would come up here and set up camp and they would seek the resources that I've been talking with you about. So uh, let's move on to Tahoma's other big story, the second idea of tonight, and that is the effects of climate change at Mount Rainier. And I can just tell you from going out with the various researchers that that's one of the first things that people share with me. When I was out with the butterfly researchers, the surveyors out at Natchez Peak, uh, one of the things they talked about was that their data indicates 
that subalpine and alpine butterflies appear to be being affected by, the, uh, by climate change. When I was out with the park fisheries biologist, we were looking for bull trout and their reds on the White River and some of its tributaries in the Upper White. I learned that bull trout have a really narrow band of habitat suitability. Basically, they like really, really cold water and that this is probably going to put them at greater risk uh, in the coming years. And uh, at uh, Palisades Lake, looking for uh, long-toed salamanders and these little critters, these are north, this is a northwestern salamander. I learned that probably all of the park's 14 species of amphibians appear to be uh, at risk to the effects of climate change. And as you might have read, up at Paradise, uh, researchers from the University of Washington are finding that wildflowers are blooming earlier and staying open for longer periods of time than in prior seasons. And when you consider that there's a very highly evolved long-term pattern, a sequence, uh, phenology, if you will, between uh, plants and their pollinators like bumblebees, other insects, the two species of hummingbirds, which are the rufous and the calliope hummingbird that pollinate uh, the wildflowers up at uh, Paradise and the other subalpine meadows. If that pattern, if that gets set out of whack, well, that could have some long-term consequences for either the plants or their pollinators that we just don't even know yet. But what of the glaciers? So these gigantic blankets of snow and ice that you saw today when you were, if you were able to see the mountain and my goodness, it was certainly got beautiful as the day went on, didn't it? Uh, more glacial ice here than all the Cascade volcanoes combined. So what do the experts say? Well, park geologist Scott Beeson not long ago completed a study and he found that the mountain's glaciers lost 39% of their area, 45% of their volume between 1896 and 2015. So in other words, in just 120 years, the mountain's glaciers lost over a third of their coverage, their area, and they lost nearly one half of their thickness, their volume. And Paul Cannard said in a workshop, I heard him say this more than once, that we've lost eight glaciers at Mount Rainier in my lifetime. We also lost the treasured Paradise Ice Caves, and I'm willing to bet there's at least one or two people in this uh, call tonight that remember these wonders of nature. That was a series of ice tunnels at the base of the Paradise Glacier. And the last of these disappeared in the early 1990s. And I think just these few slides make it really clear, painfully obvious that uh, the effects of climate change on Mount Rainier's glaciers has been uh, pretty dramatic in, in the last hundred years. And there's more to the story of climate change than just these few animals and plants and the glaciers. And to take a look at that, let's examine some of the rivers flowing away from Mount Rainier and see what we can learn there. This is the shot of the carbon in winter looking down river. And I want you to notice right in the very, very foreground, this triangle of sand and sediment here. Also notice the gravel and the cobbles that are directly in front of you. And, and as you look further out into the riverbed and onto the floodplain. And keep in mind that much of this material has moved down to this spot from higher up on the mountain. And it's on its way, much of this, 
at least much of the sediment and sand is on its way actually ultimately into the Puyallup River and then into Tacoma's Commencement Bay. So this is a natural ecological process where these glacially sourced rivers, rivers that flow away from glaciers, carry sediment with them. It's called aggradation and it accumulates in the riverbeds. And at Mount Rainier, during most of the 20th century, the rate was pretty average, pretty normal, pretty consistent. Geologists found that on average, about four inches per decade was accumulating of sediment in Mount Rainier's rivers. And then Beeson and his colleagues made a startling discovery. They found that that increased by a factor of nine in a 10-year period over 36 inches on average of sediment accumulating in Mount Rainier's rivers. Wow, that's a big change. And why the big change? Well, think of the ice and snow in the upper mountain as kind of like the glue that holds together these glacial moraines and this other rock material. And as this ice and snow breaks up and deteriorates, that's going to allow larger and larger volumes of rock material to be available for downslope movement. And so when more moves down into these riverbeds, flows into the riverbed, settles in here, that's also going to create less space for water in the event of like a flooding event. And this was a classic example of this was the big flood we had in November of 2006. Here's a shot near the Nisqually entrance. This, would, this was the road from Nisqually up to Paradise. And this was the area where the Sunshine Point campground and picnic area once was. And during those few days in November of 2006, the park received about 18 inches of rain in like a day and a half, 36 hours. Uh, closed the park for six months while crews repaired over $20 million worth of damage. And I, I like to think of this park employees of thinking, where is Sunshine Point Campground? I, I was here yesterday, I can't find it. And so this is one of the effects of climate change causing increased aggradation rates, causing increased frequency of flooding and severity of flooding events. Another thing that can occur is that large volumes of rock can release spontaneously and can come rushing down river valleys in the form of a debris flow or a glacial outburst flood. And these are occurring with higher frequency. Since the 1960s, there have been over 30 debris flows or glacial outburst floods. And those two terms vary slightly uh, from each other technically what, what they are. But over 30 of these have happened since the 1960s, and most of these flows have come rip-roaring down to Homa Creek. Now, this is up the West Side Road about a mile. And was once, I remember back in the day, and you might too, Tahoma Creek was just a narrow, mild manner, a little creek 40 years ago. And uh, because of millions of cubic yards of sediment and rock material come barreling down here, it's widened, it's made this kind of like a raging river, this braided channel. You see these trees have been battered. Uh, they're standing dead trees here. Their roots have been uh, suffocated or, or, or drowned. Uh, so uh, really a dynamic and, and much changing situation here uh, at Tahoma Creek. 
So these things that are happening as a result of climate change, as I've just mentioned, aggradation rates, increases in flooding events, also increases in debris flows and glacial outburst floods. Keep in mind, all of these things happen in addition to the fact that Mount Rainier is already an active volcano, right? It already has its own set of pre-existing hazards, geological hazards. We are called to care for creation. We take the charge to care for our world seriously as we experience the effects of climate change. Our human behaviors and our human relationships affect the planet and the climate. Many of us in the Pacific Northwest cherish this mountain Within my lifetime, the snow caves at Paradise have disappeared. Human beings have caused changes on this mountain through climate change, shifting not only the plant and animal species, but whole glaciers and the course of rivers. Our task as human beings and lovers of the mountain is to take care of this earth on which we depend for our whole being. I wanted to offer gratitude for Jeff Antonellis Lapp for coming virtually to St. Mark's and for allowing us to use segments of his talk. I encourage you all to explore Jeff's book, Tahoma and Its Peoples, A Natural History of Mount Rainier National Park, published through the Washington State University Press. At the time of this recording, Jeff's book has been selected as a finalist in the Banff Mountain Book Competition. And I am grateful as we are always being formed in our faith for the leadership of the care creation team at St. Mark's as they continue to shape our life together in relationship to the earth. St. Mark's School of Theology is a project and experiment in adult faith formation during these COVID times. The St. Mark's School of Theology is produced by Cody Schumann. Our theme music is created and composed by Cody Schumann. To learn more about the community of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, please visit our website at smlutheran.org.